0: Back up, please. Hello
1: and welcome to Tech Commerce I'm Abhishek. And today I have with me the economist, Andreas Kluth, whose special report on mobility in the current issue, that is April 12, 2008 issue, has created quite a buzz in the blogosphere already. Andreas, it's great to talk to you
0: again. Hello Abhishek, it's great to be back. It's been a while.
1: Yep. Andreas, I was, uh, I mean, there's so much written about mobility, mobile telephony, internet, telecommunications, how the emerging markets are coming into it. What was the brief that was given to you, and with what objective
0: did you set out to write this special report? Well, I had no brief given to me at all. Last July, I got, you know, I was one of the first to get an iPhone. Mm -hmm. And it changed the way I I worked and behaved. And I did things that I had never done before, interacted with my wife and some family members. And I was sitting in this conference listening to someone from Google speak when I had this idea that it's time for somebody to really examine and narrate all the ways that mobility changes us, changes our behavior and maybe society. In other words, it's time for someone to write an article Mm -hmm. that does not look at the technology itself, but at what it would do to human beings, because mobile phones and, and laptops and Wi-Fi, all of that is so well covered mm-hmm. that I said the one thing that's not covered is, or not covered adequately yet, is, is how does it changes as human beings? And so spontaneously, I was sitting there in this audience at this conference, and I, fittingly, I emailed off this pitch to the editor of, of who, who does our special reports, and and that was my pitch. And it went back and forth, and then, you know, it takes a long time at The Economist to draw up these lists of what our special reports are about, and so a couple of months after the pitch, they said, sure, you know, go ahead and do it. So it was not a brief given to me, it was an idea I had to cover mobility in terms of the social phenomenon, the sociology, the anthropology, the psychology, the urban planning, the architecture, the, you know, and so forth. Everything but the technology or the business, and that's what I tried to do.
1: Oh, well, if that was the idea, then you aced that test. The series of articles that you've written, they stand, they will stand the test of time. I mean, they're not time-sensitive because, like you said, they
0: talk about the social side of technology. Well, you never know how, how anything stands the test of time. <laughs> and thank you, Abhishek, for your enthusiasm. I wish all readers were exactly like you. During the process, I was trying to picture how would a journalist 100 years ago or a little bit less than 100 years ago cover the car? Because I'm sure at the time, everyone was writing about, you know, oh, here's the new car, and you were comparing the Ford Model T maybe and, and, and what it can do. But at some point, someone should have sat down and thought ahead about, you know, and found some early adopters of cars and observed how their behaviors changed and then extrapolated from that that maybe in America we would have suburbs, you know, and mm-hmm. maybe malls and Walmarts and drive-through and that we m- might have obese people and new dependencies on oil in the Middle East. All of these things would have at some point become clear and I wanted to try to do that for this new era of mobility. That, that was the idea. So if it stands the test of time, that would be the best, the best present to me. Oh, <laughs> well, Andreas, do you consider yourself a digital nomad? It's a phrase that
1: caught on after I read your article. So do you consider yourself yeah. as one?
0: Yes, I do, because actually, you know, the definition of nomad is not someone who has no office at all or someone who moves or travels a lot. No, not at all. It's just someone, it could be a teenager, someone who stays almost constantly in touch with some family members or colleagues and is always reachable and who uses some sort of gadget to get more out of place, who feels a new freedom in his daily normal little movements and in that sense I'm very much a nomad. I haven't been a nomad for a long time. I've just become one. I work from wherever I am. I work from a cafe a lot because I have a little baby at home and there's some noise. Sometimes I work from home but it doesn't matter where I am. I very rarely print things out on paper anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm almost always reachable so I have to figure out for my own enjoyment of life when I, I shouldn't be reachable and how to do that. And in that sense, I'm definitely a nomad. And I think most young people mm-hmm. are. I'm, I'm pretty sure most people listening to your podcast will also be nomads by my definition.
1: Yes. And it's interesting you mentioned that you like to work from cafes, etc. I mean, uh, Howard uh, Schultz, I think, the guy who was at the helm at Starbucks, he once upon a time he had said that, I want Starbucks to be a third home. But today, the delineation between office and home has decreased because you can carry your work around through laptops and your cell phones. So now it, it becomes your second home, basically. There is no third home at all.
0: Yeah. The thing that Howard uh, Schultz said was uh, a third place oh. and a home away from home. And, you know, Starbucks is no longer a home away from home because it's this, become this soulless McDonald's-like chain, and he's <laughs> now come back <laughs> to change it. But, but that was his idea. You know, in my metaphor of nomadism, in the old days in the desert, the, the Bedouin would mm-hmm. go from oasis to oasis because to, they needed water for the camels and so forth. What do nomads nowadays need? They need uh, connectivity, Wi-Fi, but that's easy to find. And increasingly, they need to recharge batteries. Right. And so you, if you notice, a lot of Starbucks, they have these meeting desks because they assume people go there to have meetings. And there tend to be around these convenient desks where there's a, bunch of cables and electrical sockets in the middle because they know that that's going to be the draw. So the price of recharging your battery and having Wi-Fi is Mm -hmm. to buy an overpriced cup of cappuccino, you know. (laughs) So that's exactly the vision. I'm not saying that Starbucks is good necessarily at it because all sorts of places are becoming these kinds of third places. Third place meaning You know, your home is your first place, your office was your second place, and then there was always a third place, which is a sort of public neutral ground, right? That's
1: right. And in one of your emails, you told me that your report sparked a pleasant controversy among your colleagues.
0: I seem to do that with my special report. Two years ago, I wrote a special report on the future of the media, and that caused a little bit of a controversy, too. See, the way I saw it, I'm reporting on existing trends by Mm -hmm. telling the stories of real people, but the editor of this, uh, you know, she's from an older generation. She, I think, had concerns whether this is a little bit too far out, if I might say, too edgy, too, too ahead of the curve. If we're, getting, if, if we're going too fast into the future, this is a little bit crazy. Shouldn't we go slower or something like that? So I had to con- manage and assuage her concerns in that regard. And it was just interesting to me how people read into it mm-hmm. what they want. Because really, uh, as you've noticed, it's, it's a collection of lots of stories from people. And these stories are not actually terribly earth-shattering. It, it, you know, you don't think you're being futuristic when you observe, for instance, Rudy Giuliani, who was a okay. presidential candidate a while ago. You know, when he takes a phone call while he's addressing a, a big audience <laughs> in the middle of it. He picks up his phone. His wife is calling, and everyone listens. You know, nobody thought, "Oh, this is futuristic." There's an age of nomadism, but I'm I'm using these stories and collectively to remind people that all of it taken together, this is, the world is a bit different than it was ten years ago. You know, right? And some people, I think, uh, so certainly the editor of the special report, she got a little bit scared <laughs> in the beginning. Oh boy, what are you? And she kept saying, "What are you predicting?" And I'm saying, like, actually, I'm not predicting anything. I'm I'm telling some stories, and from that that we can spot a trend. And so that was the controversy. Uh-huh. And at some point and we moved beyond it and now it's out and I I've, I've been looking forward to this point because now of course the readers get to decide and I look at the blogosphere and people are blogging about it and it's great because now everyone sort of projects their own observations into the stories that I'm telling there.
1: Right, but don't you think that as part of the skepticism of the editor could be justifiable because uh, I'll narrate you a small incident. I have a friend of mine whose brother was eight or nine years old and had gone to his place uh, at his apartment. And uh, I mean, the prick that I am, what I did was just to see what kind of sites that eight-year-old guy visits, I typed in Pamela Anderson in the search bar to see if it fires up any search results. And uh, there was a long list, and the first one read... I don't know whether I should say this, but it read Big Boobs Anderson and Google then helped them by saying, Did you mean Anderson? And I mean yeah, Google yeah. understands that the nine year old was not searching for Mark Anderson of Netscape but Pamela yeah, I mean, Anderson. It, yeah. So don't you think that kids are growing too fast and that they are hitting puberty a little sure. too soon? I
0: mean, that, that Oh, absolutely. But, you know, that wasn't the source of her skepticism. Uh If anything, that anecdote, to me, tells you again how fast society is changing. The editor was afraid of predicting too much change too soon, Uh Uh, whereas your anecdote's saying there's a lot of change. And with respect to the kid, I've not searched for Pamela Anderson, and that's the truth, but um, (laughs) I find her boring. Now, I have come across boobs on the web, and it's possible that I've just for journalistic reasons, probably examined those sites a little bit, and, and I might, may even have to do that again. So uh-huh. I, I sacrificed myself from the line of duty. The, the point about youth, I talked to all these sociologists and psychologists and anthropologists about that, and one of them called it a safe autonomy pattern. They're more autonomous. They get away with way more than kids one generation ago did. They get exposed to much more. They grow up much faster in some ways because they see so much more. Porn, violence, strange opinions. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't keep it away from them. But they do it in this strangely safe pattern. I mean, he was doing it from the safety of his of his room. He wasn't sort of peeking into some strip show in a bad part of town where in the old days something bad might have happened to him. Right. And also, even though they get up to all these kind of strange things, these kids, they also stay in touch with their parents in particular and other family members constantly. So there's a safety, you know? Mm-hmm. If, if you're in trouble, one push of a button, and your father knows where you are and picks you up it's a tethering phenomenon, and so some people are even concerned that it retards their maturation that it slows down their responsibilities in the old days. you had to be more careful at a younger age because you couldn't you know if you got lost okay. or if you got drunk at a party and you, you, you know that could have led to some real trouble uh it, now it's it's in so many cases just so much easier to. You know, you just, you know, call a text home and then someone picks yeah. you up and, and that's it.
1: And not only that, you know, in Australia, there is a, I don't recall the cell phone company. If you are drunk, then the cell phone will tell you that you have enough amount of alcohol to tell you that you should not be driving. And it will block a few numbers of uh, your loved ones or your ex-girlfriends or spouses so that
0: uh, you don't call them up after you get drunk automatically that is hilarious i've never heard of that how how does it figure out how drunk you are do you breathe on the cell phone i mean
1: the the operational part i'm not quite aware of but what you have to do is is that you have to dial 333 and save three or four numbers that you think that you might call after you get drunk
0: and you i mean ideally you should not be doing it so funny (laughs) and that is really funny but but see this is another great little little anecdote of nomadism because it shows you that people are integrating this into their lives, you know. So old things, old topics like calling your ex-girlfriend drunk has been a problem for all of human history. I, yeah. I just sort of <laughs> will hypothesize. It yeah. is now changed in a subtly new way just yeah. because of these nomadic tools. Yes. Yeah. And and by the way, there was Virgin.
1: I just Googled it up. It was Virgin. So you can only trust Virgin to come up with a uh-huh. solution like that. If we move on, do you think there is a big flip side to it? If I were to speak for all the wives who always complain that my husband brings his laptop to the bedroom and he's never with me, he's more with his laptop and his mobile phone than with me, and there are divorces which uh, happen because you take the digital nomadism a little too far.
0: What do you think about that? Yes. This issue which you just brought up, which is I think currently the biggest issue of them so far, is stress. And from the very simple and banal to the big, like marriages, because, I mean, for instance, you may have walked by a restaurant or been in a restaurant, and and there's a table where a girl and a boy are, you know, at a date. And they're both talking on their cell phone or they're both texting or something like that. How lonely, how sad is that? You know, it it bothers me. And then the stress comes in, especially for nomadic workers. And there's really constant flow of emails and text messages and phone calls and other things throughout the day. And these crackberries, you know, these uh, road executives who have blackberries, they're really checking their phone you see them checking them when they're at the beach when they're allegedly on holiday at the market on you know with the family on saturday and so forth in the old days when you were out of the office you were off you were this was your time and i think for a lot of people that's gone now it's a really really big issue a lot of people i think are very stressed it's not in that sense healthy you really need enormous self-discipline to turn that thing off from time to time just to have quality time
1: yeah, I mean, you just need another reason to get addicted to something. So, like you said, Crackberry, and it was the Webster's word of the year a couple of years back. I mean, those people who are too addicted to checking their emails on Blackberry. You also mentioned about uh, how all of this has changed architecture.
0: This part was the most fun for me to write, and this one I didn't expect to find when I sort of set out on the research, and it came as a surprise that... Famous architects like Frank Gehry, he's one of the big architects, are incorporating this now just as a foregone conclusion, as an assumption about lifestyles into the way they design buildings. And then out of buildings you make cities you find this especially on university campuses because mm-hmm. they're full of nomads young people and also some offices for instance the Googleplex here is a right. great example Google employees they move around this this and wherever they are they might work or they might eat and so that means that the way people design this building is different they have fewer of these let's say closed offices mm-hmm. small classrooms and more of these semi-public spaces. They're not public because not the whole public is in them. It's not like Starbucks. And therefore, they're hybrid spaces. You might actually... The teacher might give a seminar or a class under a tree or in the cafe or in the hallway, you know, because there's Wi-Fi, why not? Right. Uh, or they might they might study or they might flirt or they might eat. So the functions get mixed together mm-hmm. and the architects try to make it just a, a more pleasant, humane space and allow the people in that space to decide what is done, which is a change. Because in the old days, the architect decided at the when he was designing the building, he decided, well, here's here are the offices. That's where they work. Yep. Here's the cafeteria. That's where they eat. Here's where they go on the break. And now it's just like you, you just make one pleasant space mm-hmm. and you allow the people to, to decide what gets done. One little factoid that I stood out and that I mm-hmm. especially liked was they tend to now have curvier walls because people like, in these hybrid spaces, they like to hide or to sort of have little ad hoc privacy areas. So let's say we open a laptop and, you know, have a class, but we like to have a wall behind our back.
1: Mm-hmm. Well,
0: one way to, to give more people more opportunity to have a wall behind their back is to, like, in, like an intestine, you know, to have more curves <laughs> in the area curvy walls or bent walls or something like that. So in the old days, in the 20th century, a lot of office buildings and university buildings, for instance, and government buildings, were squares and rectangles by Mm -hmm. specialization. And now we'll have these much more interesting patterns and with people doing all sorts of things, basically whatever they want to, because they don't really care where they are in the building as long as they're with the people they need to be with because they have Wi-Fi and cell phone connection everywhere.
1: Right. And all of this about five years ago was uh, possibly not thinkable. Uh, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong.
0: No, not really. Well, if you think, the thing is for some people like architect Frank Gehry and Bill Mitchell at MIT who built this building, they were thinking about it five years ago and even longer ago because mm-hmm. the, the this building that, that is a good example, that it opened about four years ago, and there, so they must have been designing it about ten years ago. Oh. So it was clear to some people, but you know, as they say, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. <laughs> Some people now are seeing it, but most people are not. But I think what we'll see is more and more people seeing it. Right. You know, sometimes it's just a matter of adjusting a space you already have because you notice Because I live in Berkeley and there's, the university campus has changed in quite interesting ways. Mm-hmm. They haven't torn down the buildings and put up new buildings, but they've noticed that spaces where there, there used to be nobody There, let's say the hallway of the library or the lawn outside of it, you know, people were just walking in and out, but there was nothing to do. So now suddenly they've noticed that there's people with laptops, people with cell phones doing things, and someone else uh, puts up a little cafe there or redecorates it and so forth. And so in, in this sort of subtle way, places are changing already.
1: You know, all of this, the next generation buildings or these Wi-Fi campuses and Googleplex, etc., are examples from the developed economies. But on the other hand, are you surprised that the emerging markets like India, for example, or China, they are embracing the cell phone phenomena like, for, like fish takes to water. I mean, 6 million uh, new connections every month uh, is no joke. In India,
0: for example. Oh, oh, absolutely. And In poor countries, I think there's a slightly different story of nomadism to be told. Because yes. they're they're more nomadic than the people in rich countries in some ways, right? Because yes. a lot of people, you know, never had a sort of stationary phone, a stationary fax machine, a stationary anything. right? And so they jump on, especially young people, you know, with, uh, you know, I should shut up and let you talk because you probably <laughs> know better than, than I do. But, you know, the mobile phone. They pay with the mobile phones. You know, mobile phones have you know been a revolution for taxi drivers' productivities everywhere, right? Because you can be, did they, they hit you with a miss, right? Okay. They they call you, hang up on you. You know oh, to yes. pick them up. Yes. And so it's a business tool and small business owner in the poor world, in, in, in Africa and so forth. With that mobile phone, they can transfer money in ingenious ways. That's no matter. And of course now, they're probably not on the Internet. They have cell phones, but they're probably not on the Internet as we know it. But they will now very soon be on the Internet because the Internet is coming to all those mobile phones. These people
1: also, they need not be literate. And in fact, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story. One of my friend's maids who does the dishes and the clothes... Now, she's been gifted a mobile phone by one uh, house owner and the other house owner pays the bill for a particular month and if she's around a grocery store, she'll give a missed call and she'll expect a call from the owner in 15 minutes with the whole list of groceries that need to be delivered at the place. And if the owner doesn't call her up, then she simply leaves. So one missed call, groceries, two missed calls, should I come down at your place to clean up the dishes? Three missed calls, should yeah. I take your baby out for a walk or stuff like that.
0: That's amazing. And, you know, I love these stories. I hear stories like that from Africa, from all sorts of places. Mm-hmm. For some reason, people don't do that here so much. Here they give you a real call, which is often right. more intrusive, you know, <laughs> when you're driving than when they just hit you with a mist. But, you know, in future, of course, and not in the distant future, but once these phones get onto the Internet, you'll have location-based services added to that, you know. Right. And so... For instance, part of being hit with a mist, let's say, will be also will automatically will tell you where that person was, maybe. You know, your phone mm-hmm. alerts you when okay. you're in a certain building. Hey, you know, your friend Jim is also in the building. You oh. want to meet up. Uh, so it's things like that. So right. it's a new relationship that the technology establishes between us and our place. That, again, to me is nomadism. Mm-hmm. And I think it might happen even sooner in poor countries than in rich countries. The poor countries have uh, just a slight sort of regulatory angle on this. Just talking to Craig Mundy and people at Microsoft about this from time to time. In general, people here assume that Africa, India, China can move into this future more quickly than we here. Mm -hmm. In America and Europe and Japan, because you have less legacy, less bad baggage from the past in Mm -hmm. terms of what's in your airwaves. I I think it might be easier for you to figure out uh, sensible things to do with your spectrum. We have to, for instance, it's a very painful thing to kick out the TV broadcasters here in America from their airwaves. They've been sitting on the best airwaves. I mean, (laughs) one thing holding a lot of this nomadism back is that often your cell phone reception does not work. And that's because the frequencies aren't the best. That's because of our history here, our our radio and TV, because they're much older technologies from the last century. Well, now they're kicking off the TV broadcasters from that great spectrum. They Mm -hmm. have to vacate it by next February. And, of course, at that point, new networks can be built with those frequencies. And I think in, in Africa there is less of that you know you can the new wireless technologies can just transform those countries much faster probably
1: right the number of possibilities that uh, open up just because of one small technology are tremendous. I mean, and all of them seem fascinating. One of the startling statistics that I read in the report is the number of people in Japan writing books on their cell phones.
0: Isn't that amazing? I mean, this is where I feel old. I mean, I cannot imagine doing that, but they do. They apparently mostly girls write from their mobile phones, and then somehow it gets put together into books. And some of the books are bestsellers. It's a new genre. I mean, the Japanese and the Koreans—they're just they're early adopters in so many ways. Right. I think. It, it just blows me away sometimes.
1: that It's far better than once upon a time a writer had to type it out on a typewriter and if he makes a mistake in the 15th line, he has to retype the entire thing. So, I mean, such technologies are only helpful.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, and you you put your finger on something that, you know, is changing the way we treat language because mm-hmm. it's now so easy to produce words, you know, when you're instant messaging, typing on a laptop, and, you know, you have autofill, it sort of, it, it fills in words and spellings right. for you, that people take much less care with their language, and so some of the linguists spoken to, they actually don't like that. They think there's quite a lot of linguistic change in this era of nomadism because producing words is so cheap, so quick, so easy that no one thinks about what they're saying anymore. In the old days, you had to think a lot because as you just said, you know, the cost of any sort of mistake was huge. Right. When you wrote a letter to someone with your pen, you sat down, that was an occasion, you took some <laughs> time, you thought about it, then you sent it. Now you we fire off these e- emails and instant messages and so forth and constant misunderstandings, terrible language.
1: In fact, I read an article where grammar teachers in London were not very happy with the fifth graders because they would use slang and they would use smileys in their answers. So they lost their English sense of humor is what they say.
0: Oh, well, you know, fortunately the English always come up with a new sense of humor i discovered, but I'm not surprised. I mean, these smiley faces, emoticons and stuff. The young people that grow up with this, why would they separate the context of now I'll write one kind of proper English when I'm talking to my teacher and when the whole rest of the day I'm, I'm sort of doing this new pigeon English, basically. For me as a writer, I, I tend to be very sensitive to be because I, I love language and I, I treat it carefully and I try to write good emails, but it just, we write and we read so much. I mean, if right. you added up the emails that we write and read each day, uh-huh. we've all written many books already in our <laughs> lives. But most of it is crap. Yes. You
1: know?
0: <laughs> in the old days, we wrote much less and therefore made it matter more.
1: Right. Andreas, one last question. And I ask you because in your research, you met with uh, anthropologists, linguists, and uh, psychologists. But I mean, we all agree that there is a certain amount of addiction in nomadism so it's something similar to say obesity where you get a lot of craving for food so in this case lots of craving for skype and twitter and uh, chat messaging instant messaging etc so do you think you know in in obesity Merck, the pharmaceutical company is trying to come up with a pill which will uh, block that part of your brain which craves for food so do you think that there could be a medical solution to all of this and that tomorrow this problem could go out of hand and there will be a medical solution to <laughs> get this away.
0: <laughs> no, I don't think there's a medical solution, here, but you know, there's no medical solution to obesity yet either, right? right. I mean, I know there are people who staple their stomachs. Mm. Oh, God, that always, just is ghastly, just to think about it, but and then there are pills and stuff, but I've not heard of anything that actually works. You know, so here in America, it's, it's, it's allegedly a fat country, and parts of the country here are fat people. But if you're here in California, mm-hmm. people are eating organic greens and running and doing yoga, and they're all slim and fit here, mm-hmm. and that's because they've really changed behavior. And so, you know, we, we had the car culture for a, a, a century, but people now try to leave their car in their garage as much of the time as they can. So Mm -hmm. they've changed their behavior because they're so fed up with being fat and unhealthy and lazy. They're not popping any pills, (laughs) but I kind of hope that'll happen to nomads. And I'm trying to do it for me and my family because, you know, as you just said, it's kind of addictive, kind of stressful. And because I'm always reachable on my iPhone and it's always a temptation to, you know, look at what emails have just come in. And I really try to change my behavior as I try to stay slim and just turn the thing off, you know, leave it gone, not look at it mm. and just really focus on the person. And I think the new generation is actually quite well placed to do that because they live with it. They, they don't know any different, you know. So I'm hoping that a bigger backlash, including etiquette, you know, rules about not doing what Rudy Giuliani did and so forth, <laughs> that that becomes more common. So I'm definitely observing that America seems to be, at least in the places that I see, getting slimmer. And I think in time, these new nomads will also probably get less stressed out. I mean, it's just human nature. We adjust. It might, might take some time. I think some people will go crazy in the meantime.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, the simple answer is discipline. That's what they taught us in school then. Yeah. Uh, Andres, uh, I just have ten questions. Let's call it the rapid fire round that I did with Daniel Franklin as well, the executive editor. And
0: uh, I. Oh, that's right. Oh, yes. I should have prepared for that. <laughs> okay, well, now... I should have had another coffee. I hope I don't fail this test. All, All right. right. Here we go. The, the, the rules are what? I have to I, I have yes. to say one word? or ah, Yeah, no. the
1: rule is very simple. One or two words, or maybe a phrase at the max. And as spontaneous, as the first thing that comes to your mind. There's no right or wrong answer here. All okay. right? How would you describe in one word the economist's editorial view of the world? Liberal. What is your message to a few who opine that the economist is pitched at an American readership because of its high circulation there? A
0: not true. Partially true. Uh,
1: which is your favorite section apart from the technology section on The Economist? Obituary. Oh, okay. Now let's assume that I work under you, and if I were to report to you, so name one journalistic liberty that I take, and uh, you will be willing to pardon even though I'm wrong. Even though
0: you're wrong. Um, too much color.
1: Ah, uh, okay. So you wouldn't mind me using too much color in, in, the, in the text?
0: Correct. Okay. I will let you get away with it.
1: Okay, and and one such liberty that you would never pardon me.
0: Mixed metaphors. Yeah. You know, okay. Can I elaborate on that? Today sure. I was reading the front page of the New York Times. The first sentence of the main story was something like uh, something has unleashed a wave of and it, you know there was a slump. All in one sentence, there were about five metaphors. Uh, My I'm, head was spinning, and I was like, <laughs> How did this happen? You know. Anyway.
1: If The Economist were a cartoon character, what would it be? Asterix. Oh, well, that's what Daniel Franklin said as well. Uh, I
0: have to Tintin. Oh, okay. I say Tintin. And why would you say that? <laughs> I don't know, because I don't know that many cartoon characters <laughs> offhand. It's been too, too many years. But Tintin was kind of witty and smart and mm-hmm. a little bit naughty and too curious and got in a lot of trouble.
1: Oh, okay. And finally, Andreas, when do I get your autographed copy of the book that you're writing?
0: Oh, you're always too kind to bring that up. You will get a autographed copy of the book as soon as it's out. Uh-huh. I have to deliver it in a- next April. You know the book industry is so slow. I think it could be another half year or so. Hmm. So I I think the end of 2009 you will get a book in the mail with my autograph in it. I look forward okay. to that. Now, now we need to say I'm still dying to see your multimedia clip that we'll publish on our website, of The Economist, on the homepage, any day now, this week, I understand, So part right. of the little theories we're doing that accompanies the special report on mobility. Mm-hmm. I think you're one of three. One Another one is the chief executive of Sun Microsystems, he's the one, and then the anthropologist of Nokia, that's already up. And so, uh, any day now, we're all going to check out what you, Habishek, have come up <laughs> with there. nomadic tales from India I really look forward to
1: it yes and I look forward for the comments as well and thanks a lot Andreas for your time again and you've been very kind and humble all the time to be very prompt on your emails thanks so much Thank, thank you Abhishek ciao ciao